Matthew 23, 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, which are justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done. That is, you should have tithed mint and cumin but not without, but without neglecting the others. There is ultimately one reason why every believer ought to be a tither. It is biblical. And whatever, and all the other reasons, whatever their importance or value, really carry no weight if what we're talking about is not utterly biblical. Now, tithing is not a thing indifferent. There are a lot of things we do that are indifferent. Whether a preacher wears a robe when he preaches or not, whether the folks stand or kneel when they pray, whether the church meets on Friday night or Wednesday night for prayer meeting, these are all indifferent. Tithing is not like that. And when Jesus arrived on the scene, tithing was an assumption. That is, it was just assumed that every Jew who practiced religion would tithe. It was like going to the synagogue. Now, Jesus didn't have a whole lot to say about going to the synagogue, and yet that was his custom. And it was assumed that every good Jew went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. It was like fasting. Now you're not going to find a whole lot in the Scripture in the New Testament about tithing because it was just assumed that every person in that day who was practicing religion would be a tither. Now there were a lot of things that the religious leaders were doing wrong and Jesus let them know about it. I mean, in no uncertain terms, He pulled out all the stops, and He literally ripped the Pharisees because of what they did. And so it's kind of a shock when you find Him complimenting them, as in our text. Now, my father used to call this a backhanded compliment, but it was a compliment nonetheless. He said, I see that you tithe mint and cumin, these things which are herbs and spices used in the preservation and in the preparation of food. And he said, this you ought to do. Now, if someone were to ask the majority of people, ask this congregation, why does the church teach tithing or preach on tithing, the majority of you probably would answer, well, we've got to pay those enormous salaries or we've got to keep the lights burning, we've got to pay our bills. And these are all reasons, but they're not the ultimate reason. The ultimate reason why we teach tithing is that it's biblical, that Jesus said we ought to do it. And if God lays claim to it, then we have no questions to ask about it. 
Now I want this sermon this morning to be an encouragement. I told him in the early service, it was just great in that, you know, we had the best time in that early service. I told him I wanted to make this sermon an encouragement because, as a matter of fact, we are not by nature givers. We are allergic to that. And we look for every loophole we can find to justify not tithing. And I want this sermon this morning to be an encouragement to you to do that which the Lord has assumed that you would do. And I want to lay some pragmatic grounds for tithing. By that I mean I want to put it to the pragmatic test. I want us to see if tithing works. And I believe that the pragmatic test is biblical too. Now some people disagree with that. They say, well, if God says it, that settles it. In other words, if it's biblical, it doesn't matter whether it works or not. I'm here to tell you that because it is biblical, it does work. And you can't deny Malachi 3.10. It says, bring you all the tithes into the storehouse that there might be meat in my house. That's the scriptural mandate. But the rest of that verse goes like this. And prove me, says the Lord, and see if I'll not pour out a blessing that there'll be no room to receive. That's the pragmatic test. And so I want to give you four reasons this morning why you should tithe from the pragmatic point of view. First of all, it is the way you get in touch with your identity. Now the issue is ownership and property right and sovereignty. I mean, the whole thrust of the Bible is based upon the authority and the sovereignty of God and the claim that He is the sole owner of everything. And it has to be established. That has to be established. For what right does somebody have to, 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 to ask of me a part of that which I've had to go out into the jungle and get and obtain. I mean, what right does anybody have to ask of me that which I have had to work so hard to obtain? The issue, you see, is what right does God have to ask of me anything? And all through the Bible, God seeks to establish His authority and His right of property. And there is a principle I want you to get. I've given it before, but I don't think some of you got it the first time. This is the principle. That God always reserves something for Himself in the physical realm where man obtains his living in order to remind man that he, God, is the sole owner of everything. Now I need to say that again. God always has reserved for Himself in the physical realm where man obtains his living Something for himself he reserves to remind man that he, God, is the sole owner of everything. First thing he did was a tree. And he told Adam, he said, Now you have access to all the trees of this garden except one. I'm reserving that one in the realm, the physical realm, where you obtain your living to remind you over and over again, I own everything here. The second thing was a day. And he said, six days you will labor, but on the seventh day you're not to labor. That's to be a day of rest and worship because I want you to be constant remind, constantly reminded that the time you use is mine. 
And the third thing he did was a city. And so they came in to to Canaan, and the first city they took was Jericho. And God said, now I'm going to sustain you by allowing, allowing you to live on the spoils of all these cities you take, except one. You're not to touch the spoils of the city of Jericho, because I want to remind you that everything in this world belongs to me. And you remember the story how Achan disobeyed and violated that property right. And the work of God and the progress of God came grinding to a halt because a man violated the principle of God's ownership. Then he did it with a year. He said at the end of the six years, if you have a slave, you set him free because the seventh year belongs to me. And on and on and on. And he comes down to the tithe and he says, I'm reserving this part in the physical realm where you obtain your living because I want you to constantly be reminded that I'm the sole owner of everything. Now, if God is the sole owner of everything, what does that make me? If God owns everything, what am I? I'm the manager of it. You see, the whole nation watched a couple of weeks ago as Humphrey the humpback whale got himself up in the San Francisco Bay and got in trouble. You, you saw that on television. You read about it. Didn't you, old Humphrey? And, and 4,000 people came out to San Francisco Bay to splash water on this humpback whale to keep him alive until they could get him out to deep water. It wasn't the first time he got himself in that strait. In 1985, he wandered up the Sacramento River and got trapped up there, and they like to never got him out, back out to the Pacific Ocean where he belongs. What's the matter with that goofy thing? And whale watchers have been baffled by Humphrey because it just seems like he's unwilling or incapable of following the herds in migration, or at least get out in the Pacific deep where he belongs. And veterinarians have, they have uh, you know, given him the test and they've pronounced him fit as a fiddle. You know? So what in the world is the matter with him? Somebody said, some have theorized that he suffered damage to the radar whale brain, that, that famous whale brain that guides him in migration and, and in their instinctive habits, and etc., some, some people say, well, he just likes San Francisco, you know. He, he just likes the fish that live in that part of the, that part of the world. And, and some wag said, well, he's got a screw loose. And he, he likes the attention his acting out gets from the human population. Um, a, na- a woman by the name of, of Juanita Gossett in USA Today makes a telling comment. Now listen, she said... I don't think Humphrey knows he's a whale, or at least he's not willing, at least he wants to be something else. William Glasner, the psychologist and author, says that our whole culture is in an identity crisis. And he said, like whales, we've wandered up rivers and gotten ourselves stranded in dangerous environments because we're unsure of our purpose and we're uncertain of our direction, we're unsatisfied with our existence, we're unmindful of our potential, and we're unaware of our danger. Can you think of anything more sad and intriguing than a whale who doesn't know who or what he is? 
how sad and how tragic that the highest form of God's creation, which is the human being, has never come to grasp with the fact of who or what he is. He's a manager. He's a steward. And God has placed him in charge of all of this marvelous creation, and he just comes and visits us occasionally just to see how we're doing in the management of it. I want you to imagine yourself stepping into the Garden of Eden for the first time, that primal garden, and you look around and you say, man, what a place. And all of a sudden you see this guy coming up to meet you and he's got on a fig leaf, you know, and you say, hi, I'm Tom Smith. He says, well, I'm Adam. Adam who? He said, I'm just Adam. He said, I'm, this is magnificent. You own this? Oh, no, he said, I don't own this place. God, own, oh, God does. Well, is he here? No, he lives in heaven. He just comes and visits me in the cool of the evening. Well, he said, so you say, well, I wish you'd take me to the person in charge here. This is a magnificent place. I'd like to meet the manager. And he points to himself and says, you're looking at him. Well, you see, before sin came in the garden, man understood his role. He understood that he was the keeper and the manager of everything that God owns And the first step in discovering who you are and your identity is the recognition of that. And that first step is when you begin to tithe. All right, second. Every Christian ought to be a tither because of what it does for the work of God in the world. And Malachi 3.10 says, Bring you all the tithes into the storehouse that I might have meat in my house. Now does that seem strange to you? That the God who claims to own the cattle on a thousand hills and all the silver and the gold says that He has nothing except what you bring Him. Does that seem contradictory to you? Am I on? Does that seem contradictory? It does. I mean... Does it seem like a paradox or a contradiction that God says on the one hand He has everything, on the other hand He says He has nothing except what you give Him? That's called an antinomy. Now an antinomy is a truth, is this truth, that there are two principles that are irreconcilable. You can't reconcile them, but both of them are true. In J.I. Packer's book, evangelism and the sovereignty of God, he talks about antinomies. He says that the sovereignty of God and the free will of man is an antinomy. How can God be sovereign and man be free at the same time? He talks about the God-man idea as an antinomy. How can Jesus be 100% God and 100% man at the same time? And he talks about tithing as an antinomy. How can God own everything and how can He own nothing except what you bring Him? It's, it's just true. Now I want to look at the latter side of that principle. And I want you to hear me now. The most disgraceful thing in all the world is a church that is limited financially because its people do not tithe. It's a direct contradiction to the sovereignty of God. Now, it's nothing disgraceful about a church that's limited financially. It is disgraceful 
if the church is limited financially because its members do not tithe. I want to give you a startling statistic. If every professing Christian in America suddenly had his salary reduced to poverty level so that he would qualify for welfare, if every Christian in America suddenly received a welfare income and began to tithe that welfare income, there would be a 35% increase in giving among American Christians. Is that astounding or what? What that means is that there is not a total commitment to giving, to tithing, to the point of sacrifice. There is a commitment, but it's not total. And there is no total commitment to the point of sacrifice among the majority of us. And if every person who is a Christian began the ministry and the mission of tithing, we'd have to get a committee to figure out how to spend all the money. I'm sure we could do it. But it'd take a, it'd take a committee. All right, third. Every Christian ought to tithe. Great big old young person in the early service this morning lifted his hand to say, I want to begin to tithe. Big old guy. Every Christian ought to tithe, third, because of what it does to the God and for the God of heaven. Now you're asking me, what in the world could my tithing do for God in heaven? Well, I'm glad you asked. I'm fixing to tell you. The Bible declares that when someone looks to his son, that he's justified by faith, that he looks to the Son of God by faith, and he's justified by that faith. That's called justification. It means just as if he'd not sinned. But there is also a term in, in theology called imputation of righteousness. It occurs at the time of justification. Now let me illustrate it like this. If someone took the book of your life and turned to the record of your life and took off of the page that is the record of your life all your sin and turned to the page that has Jesus' name on it and put your sin on His page, that's justification. But imputation of righteousness is that God takes His righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus, and turns and puts it on your page. So justification is taking your sin and putting it on Jesus, taking His righteousness and putting it on you. And the Bible is replete with examples of justification by faith. Abraham is exhibit A for justification by faith. But when you get to the book of James, the little epistle of James, he starts talking about justification by works. Now when he talks about justification by works, it doesn't mean he's contradicting Paul who believed in justification by faith, although Martin Luther thought he was. He called the book of James a right strawy book. What he meant by that, it had no substance to it. A right strawy book. I love that term. But James was not contradicting Paul when he said, therefore we're justified by works and not by faith only. He wasn't talking in contradiction to Paul. He was talking about the obedience of everyone who is justified by faith. Now watch carefully. According to James, 
There are two great watersheds in the life of Abraham, Exhibit A of justification by faith. The first time, the first watershed is the 15th chapter of the book of Genesis. And God called Abraham out of the tent and he said, Abraham, take a look at the sky. See all those stars? I'm going to make your nation as plentiful as the stars in the sky. And the Bible says that Abraham believed God and it was declared to him righteousness, imputed righteousness on the basis of that faith. The second great watershed occurred in the 22nd chapter of Genesis, when Abraham was told by God to take his son out to the top of Mount Moriah and offer him as a sacrifice, he did everything God told him. And he was ready to plunge the knife into Isaac, offering him as a sacrifice when God stopped him. And James says he calls that act of obedience the justification by works. Now listen carefully what he meant. I think ratification or vindication is a better word. So that we are justified by faith and that takes us to heaven, but our justification is ratified and vindicated by our obedience. And James says that anybody who has genuine imputation or justification has that ratified by his obedience. And that's not all. For when God stopped the hand of Abraham, he said this. Are you listening? He said, Now I know that he fears God, seeing that he was willing not to spare his son. Now, didn't God know his heart already? I mean, didn't God know that Abraham feared him? I, sure he did. God knows everything. He, he's omniscient. He knows the heart. What that means is that now God is able to share his feelings with Abraham. And what he's saying is this, Abraham, I am delighted in your obedience. I'm pleased that you're willing to obey me. I'm thrilled by the fact that you're willing to make this act of obedience. And you can just feel heaven ring with the joy of God when he sees the obedience of Abraham. Now you want to know how to make God happy. You want to know how to make God delighted and thrilled and pleased. You be obedient to God in every way, beginning with the tithe. One last thing, please. I'm having a good time, but I can say you're not too having, having a good time. One last thing. I think every Christian ought to tithe because of what tithing does for us. Now I want to read just a portion of that 22nd chapter of Genesis, that account of Abraham's obedience. Now listen to this. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, in, indeed, I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies and in your seed... All the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed me. 
Now, however else you want to interpret this, what you have to understand or believe or interpret, however else you interpret, you've got to, do, got to do it this way, that God blesses obedience and that He waits until He sees if the Christian is really serious or not about his Christianity. And if he sees that the Christian is really serious about his Christianity, then he blesses that person. He blesses that Christian. It frees him to bless that one. And that blessing is grasped in both the physical and the spiritual realms. Now I'm one to believe that the greatest blessings that come from God come in the spiritual realm. Now what you do, what you see on television, you see this nice looking guy, he has a beautiful head of hair plastered back. He's probably going to tell you that if you give to him, you'll get rich. Now I've got an opinion about that, which I value very much. <laughs> but my, I, I'm convinced that, a, that the blessing of God, the, the richest blessing of God does not take place in the physical realm. It takes place in the spiritual realm. Now you're going to ask, how is it that God blesses us in the spiritual realm if we're obedient? Well, He just does something to your spirit and for your spirit. He releases you. He frees you. He gives us freedom. Now the interesting thing about freedom is that most of the time we do, we do not know that we're enslaved until we've been freed. And we don't know most of the time that we are slaves to our processions until we're freed from that slavery. You ever notice that? Have you all ever noticed? This is yes. And when you're freed from that slavery, then all of a sudden it... It dawns on you, hey, I was in bondage to that, to things. Stephen Blow writes a column uh, in the Dallas Morning News. I'm hooked on that guy. Every other day he writes a column in the Dallas Morning News. I love it. Not long ago he was talking about how enslaved we have become to fashions. And he said... You know, the designer clothes? He said, how, 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 how enslaved we are to these designer clothes. He said, it starts down in the grade school. You know, I mean, if you don't have designer clothes, you're not coolish. I mean, you're not with it. You, you're not there. And he told about this woman one day who went into one of these warehouse outlets where I trade. <laughs> he went into one of these warehouse outlets, and he... He, he, he said this woman was in tears. She was a single parent and she couldn't afford designer clothes. And she said that her daughter, who was in the fifth grade at school, came home crying one day because that the kids at school pitched pennies at her because she couldn't wear designer clothes. Now, is that cruel or what? And I, I've had people tell me that... that that they didn't even know that they were enslaved to things until they were freed from that slavery. And I've had people say, you know, I have discovered that I was in bondage 
to, my, to the stuff in my life until I began to deal with this matter of, of tithing. And I discovered I was enslaved to it. And I've had people tell me, when I began to tithe, it loosed something in my prayer life because how could I ask God to bless me in my prayer life when I was living in, in, in known disobedience? And I've had people tell me that I've, when I started tithing, it loosed me to be a witness because how could I go out and ask somebody to surrender their life to the Lordship of Christ when I had an area of my life that was not yet under His Lordship? Does that make any sense to you? Makes a lot of sense to me. And He blesses us in the physical realm. Now I could give you story after story, but I'll just give you one. John Rockefeller rode the American dream. And he pushed himself to be a success, and by the age of 23, he was a millionaire. By the age of 50, he was the world's richest man. Three years later, he developed a disease and all the hair on his head fell out. All the hair on his head, his eyebrows, his eyelashes. And he was the world's only billionaire. He could have anything he wanted to eat, but the only thing he could digest was milk and crackers. Somebody said of him, he couldn't sleep and he wouldn't smile. And he shriveled up till he looked like a mummy, literally. His skin took the color of a mummy. And the doctor said, John Rockefeller has one year to live. He went to bed one night. He couldn't sleep. He was tossing on his bed, and he made a decision that turned his life around. He decided that instead of hoarding, he would give it away. He got up the next morning and he set in motion the formation of the Rockefeller Foundation. And he put his money up for charity, for hospitals, research, and missions. The result of the Rockefeller Foundation, we discovered penicillin and the cures of malaria, typhoid, and, and, and other diseases. And this man who could not sleep, would not smile, had a year to live. The old codger lived to be 98 years old. Now I'm not going to tell you this morning that if you change your giving habits, you'll live forever. But I am going to tell you by the authority of God's Word that God will bless you in the physical and spiritual realm only when you're obedient to Him. I want you to bow your heads, close your eyes. Now this is not our invitation. I want to do this before the invitation comes. Just like I did in that early service. I'm going to ask this morning if there is a person here who is not a consistent tither. I'm going to ask you if you're willing to say in your heart to God, a commitment to God, not to man, I will make a commitment to become a tither for the rest of my life. And I'll make that commitment today.
I thought about saying for, the first, for three months, but that's not the way it worked. I make a commitment to be a tither for the rest of my life. Is there anybody who would say, I need to make that kind of commitment, and here's my hand as evidence that I'm going to do it. Lift your hand. Anybody in the balcony? All here? Yes. Amen. Thank you, young man. Yes. All right. Many of you. Anywhere else? I'll do That's fine. Thank you, dear. Somewhere else in the balcony, in the choir? Anybody? I'll give you a second chance. Think about it a little bit. Pray about it in your heart. I'm not a tither, but I will be one. Here's my hand. I'm showing my hand as, a, as evidence of my commitment. Anywhere? Balcony? Up there in the balcony. Several of you. Thank you. God bless you. Young people are doing this. Anyone else? In the choir? All right. In the choir. Give you a third chance. Think about it. Pray about it. You've thought about it some? It's biblical. It works. I'll do it. Here's my hand. Anybody else? I see that hand. Yes. Wonderful. Now, join me in prayer. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit will guide every decision made in this moment because I pray in Jesus' name. Now look here with me. I'm going to ask you now as we in a moment when we stand for our invitation. I'm not asking you to hold your hand up. I've already, I'm not going to lie to you. But I am going to ask of those of you today who would like to come and surrender your life to the Lordship of Christ. It may mean that you need to come and accept Christ as your Savior publicly, like in the early service. That man, it's a man. Terry Williams was his name. A grown, adult, middle-aged man. And a student coming to say, I, I want to surrender my life to the Lordship of Christ, and I want to join this church, and I want to be baptized. What a step of faith. I wonder if there's anybody else who could do that, who would do that this morning. Or maybe you need to come and surrender at the point of church membership or the rededication of your life to Christ. You'll need to come right on the first word because that's the easiest one. While we stand to sing, we invite you to come.